Thanks for checking out another Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. On this episode, we're talking to Dan Leventhal and Lee Folsom Boyd about editing Spider-Man Far From Home. Dan Leventhal, ACE, has been editing Marvel movies since the original Iron Man in 2008 and has largely edited Marvel movies since then, like Iron Man 2, Thor The Dark World, Spider-Man Homecoming, and Ant-Man. He's also edited Dead Presidents, Elf, and Cowboys and Aliens, among others. Lee Folsom Boyd has a similar pedigree of big-budget films, including three of the Fast and Furious franchise, Ant-Man, and Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. Lee and I spoke about that editing experience on a previous Art of the Cut. We talked over Skype with Lee calling in from London and Dan from L.A. Dan and Lee, thank you so much for uh, joining me. I went to go see uh, Spider-Man Far From Home last night and loved it. Uh, One of the things that that struck me with the movie was the sense of the personal side and blended with the gigantic VFX part of it. How much did you guys have to do to decide how much of the character development stuff you had compared to the other? Was that all scripted or did you find that that changed in post i think it evolved right right i mean they had a lot of of good stuff in place and and the first movie had established an awful lot about him but as we went along um things did keep evolving one of the other things that that struck me just uh, to to come up with some discussion points is some of the uh, the vfx are so elaborate that i was trying to figure out how you even when when you were in the early stages before the effects were delivered, what were you using to um, get a feel for those shots? Were you using previs or were yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, we used previs, um, and then you know our visual effects team was great, and uh, they tried to get us, you know, keep stepping up the quality of the shots in postvis and and then temp comps as they could. So that really helped reimagine the sequences as well yeah you know our first goal with the assembly is to just be able to tell a story so they gave us enough of pre-vis and then and then that turns into post-vis which is they start to shoot the backgrounds and we put that stuff in uh but then at a certain point all bets are off and we start rewriting the whole movie anyway and uh, start start changing the thing and and uh, lee certainly did an awful lot of that <laughs> You sometimes have to start the conversation by requesting something, whether it was planned or not, just to get everyone thinking about everything. So, um, well, we're going to have to do something here. So we may interact with the post-biz people or pre-biz even sometimes and say, can you do this for us? And uh, then we'll put it in. And then once the director and the other powers that be come in, then they'll put in their two cents. But we have to kind of get it started. Absolutely. You mentioned that uh, you kind of rewrote or things changed fairly significantly. Can you remember, uh, I don't know how many of them you can discuss, but is there a specific example that you could cite of, hey, this is the way it was written, and when you actually saw it as a story in time, it didn't work. Uh, What were some of those things that did change? The action scenes definitely evolved the most, and and Lee had the, uh, the task of the gigantic end battle, which... Which my, I mean, it was, it, it's, it's sort of how it evolved as night and day. On my side was the, um, uh, the illusion battle. You know, we have high ambitions, and so 
as as uh, the original plan everyone felt was underwhelming so then it um, the eye of sauron goes on to that and then <laughs> and then we put all our effort into that and then it moves to the next thing so that's kind of how it goes how did you guys divide up though you you mentioned that lee did the 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 big battle at the end and you kind of did the big battle in the middle what what was the uh the breakdown of just stuff coming in during dailies and who took what well he tried to take everything let's <laughs> that's that's what she does but that was great she's 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 like more than game for everything um i always have an interest because i go back i'm kind of a story guy and so i have an interest in character and tone in our negotiation for who would do what and it made me very happy to give her the biggest hardest task and because i in my world i like to kind of um find the tone, find the story beats and the character stuff and and sort of try to get that stuff a little off the table. Because I figure if we if we get that early, um, it means a lot to what the rest of the process is going to be. So uh, Lee took three biggest action scenes in the movie with joy and love and, uh, <laughs> and did it. And we help each other, though. She comes yeah. in and comments on, on whatever I do. And I come in and, and comment on hers. There's, you know, between us, there's an enormous skill set, enormous amount of experience to be able to to tackle the different problems as they come. And we just had a lot of fun approaching the work. I loved the collaboration with Dan. And like he said, we were just able to hammer it out and, and, and get it done. Mm -hmm. You guys have both worked on some big, big movies. And I am really interested in the thought process of trying to manage those or understand what it means to work on a movie of that size and scope. What are some of the reasons to hire the, one of the two of you instead of somebody that's worked on a smaller film in dealing with the volume or the VFX? I suppose, you know, experience is a great thing um, and they like to mix it up. So Lee already was a very veteran uh, person on big pictures and yep. effects pictures. So she's no stranger to any of that. I'm a Marvel veteran, in fact, the original Marvel veteran, because um, I did the first Iron Man. And sort of, I have a, you know, the, the, the knowing of what's going to be expected, how it's going to go down. And I, and, you know, this was Lee's first adventure, so I, I was kind of helping her along. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, have faith in the process. Don't worry about it now. This stuff <laughs> will get there. We'll get, get there. there. And, and you know, we, we don't have a lot of pieces until late, you know, be it because of effects or eventually additional photography that makes things work. But we're editors, so we have to try to make with what we have. You can't go, well, this will be better later. You have to hammer out version after version, even if you know that this isn't going to be what it ultimately is. And sometimes they also need work in progress for other shoot, like um, right. we did this amazing bus sequence, right? And they had shot the interiors before the exteriors, and there really wasn't a semblance. So the script was kind of like it had some dialogue and ideas, but it really wasn't the shape of what Lee developed it to be. In order to do that, there's this chicken and egg thing again, where you have to present something so that then they can react off of it. It's part of our mission. It can be thankless, too, because, yeah, well, that's wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, now make it right by getting the stuff we need. So that's that's a prime example of a 
a sequence that evolved to one of my favorites uh, uh, in the movie. Lee, speak to that a little bit about what, how it evolved and what the process was of getting it from something that you don't have the footage that you need or whatever, or stuff's missing. What was carrying you through being able to get through that process? Well, I think while it's evolving, you go through a lot of ideas. With the bus sequence, there were many times when I would go into Dan's room and I would be like, Dan, I just, uh, I don't know about this. You know, there's um, there's a couple of ideas here that I, I have an issue with and he'd help me talk it out. You know, in the bus sequence, that's the first time that Peter Parker is putting on the glasses and he's introduced to Edith. In the MCU world, we know that any of the Stark tech is pretty pretty spot on, right? And so to have Edith not work for some reason, that was an evolution as well. Like what was making Edith not respond to Peter? And so um, that was something that evolved right up until the last additional photography shoot. John Watts, our director, said, you know what, we need a gag here to to, you know, like the glasses falling off of Peter's face. Like it has to be something that makes sense and that's not, you know, going to dumb down the sequence, but it has to be fun. And so that was something that kept evolving. And like Dan was saying, like we had storyboards in there for a a bit um, as it evolved and we would throw that idea away and um, just coming up with an idea that really would capture why Edith couldn't hear Peter or why they couldn't communicate with each other, you know, that, that felt organic and not like something that would be unbelievable to our audience who have come to embrace the MCU world and, you know, all the gadgets and tech and stuff like that. It had to be fun, but it had to make sense and it had to be organic. To add to that, um, when we do these scenes, they're not shot in order. They're in isolation. At first, they're each their own movie, right? Yep. And the fact is that that scene established the rules of what Edith would be. You have to then say, well, whatever rules you're going to put here now are going to apply to the third act. It meant actually looking at the strings that went all the way to the final sequence to make it all cohesive and to make it make sense. We had a lot of that. We had good sequences that we had. We made our own rules for whatever in that sequence. But then when you put it against the whole, it's like, wait, wait a minute. I thought that... um, Edith couldn't do, you know, could could just do this or couldn't do this. And so so you get to that point where you got to, well, we, we better go back and find a new way to solve the earlier scene. So so Lee had to solve it about four or five times by the time it's over. <laughs> I think Dan at one point was like, I would I would just I would kind of knock on the door and walk in and, and look at him and he would be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Dan, I just don't I just I'm having a problem here. But you know, ultimately, it all worked out. You know, your earlier question, there's a kind of a, uh, like a, like the quote in Shakespeare in Love, it's a mystery. There's kind of a faith in the process you have to have, especially on these gigantic films that are just complete organized chaos. There's no one person in the whole film that actually knows what's going on everywhere. It just, just doesn't go that way. U- ultimately, you get in the room and get everyone on the same page, but while it's going, you have to kind of just take a deep breath and have faith. So as Lee's therapist, that's uh, that was a big part <laughs> of my job is, uh, you know, don't worry, this battle isn't over. <laughs> we'll keep going and going. You were talking about these discussions in the process and how it evolves. And I love that whole idea of process. But these discussions are not happening just between the two of you, right? These are happening with Kevin Feige and they're happening with the director, um, tell me a little bit about either managing that relationship or how how you guys were collaborating. 
Kevin came out uh, a few times. They had already done an awful lot uh, before they even left uh, Los Angeles. And uh, mostly, you know, they're, they're trying to get the, the big points of the story. Um, but they're also trying to develop the, um, the action sequences. Um, they have a whole department at Marvel called uh, Look Dev. So a lot of the, the imagination that makes them greenlight a movie is based on actual still, still images that these amazing artists make. And those, those then get sort of saying, well, that's great. This was a famous moment in the comics or whatever. Now let's evolve this into a story. So we're actually coming in later in the game. I came in a little bit earlier in that um, since I had a, had a relationship with John Watts and that team, they brought me in to, to pitch the whole story very early before we started. But then we're kind of at a loss. We arrive and there's actually, it's like landing on a moving bus. So there's not really anyone, there's no, there's no time for anyone to necessarily explain anything to us. We just have to kind of jump on and, and get our own, you know, sea legs, get, get ourselves ready up, up until director's cut there isn't really that many eyes on us. There's only eyes on things that they're worried about. The rest is us just going, okay, what kind of movie can we make with what they're shooting? And so that's what we did. And we, we had a lot of fun because Lee and I could go at each other and, and play off each other and look and talk about problems. And she could educate me with her amazing organization <laughs> next to my messy organization. And, uh, you know, I give her a few pointers on Marveldom and uh, comedy and things like that. Uh, Lee, one of the things I wanted to talk about was you, you mentioned, oh, you know, this scene isn't quite working or there's some some problem that you're having with it. How are you relaying those concerns upward in the chain? Not necessarily to Dan, but because I'm sure that you, the things you would tell Dan, you would not necessarily tell to the director or to Kevin. Right. I mean, look, the last thing you want to do is go off and panic everyone that something's not working um, and you know, do a sky is falling moment. And rightly so. I mean, you only want to, to raise that flag when you really have an issue. And then, you know, so there were a couple times when we would go to set and I would bend John's ear and say, for this moment in the bus sequence, what did you kind of envision happening? And he's, and he would say, well, I, I thought that this would happen like this. And then he'd look at me and he said, is that not working? And I would say, you know what? I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at that and with that in mind and I will get back to you. <laughs> and so that's what I would do. I would say, you know, it, it, it didn't work, but let me try something else because in talking with him, um, I would come up with another approach or he would have insight and I would say, you know what, let me combine that with what I was doing and, and see if that will work better. So as far as like relaying any concerns upward, we were lucky because we really didn't have a scene that was like, oh my gosh, this is not going to work and, and have to go to anyone to say that. It was like Dan said, you know, have faith in the process. And when all the dailies are shot and you can come back to it, you know, however many weeks later when you have the other side of the scene to really work it, usually the problems kind of worked out. Or it was something that when we got deep into post, everyone thought, you know what, let's just make this better. It works, but we can make it better. And so let's put it on an additional photography shoot and let's just plus it. And, yeah. and then the problems 
were mitigated in that way as well. Yeah, my, my philosophy these days, it's really evolved over the years, is that we have way more movie than we're ever going to use in this thing. I also know that there's politics going on that um, we have to be careful about. Um, the director's biggest task during the shoot is to make his day. He's trying to make his day. So if we come and we say, well, we're missing this and this, um, it means that he has to take off something else and he may not make his day. So I'm like looking at it, they they have their own politics where they act itself for the studio's benefit, what's a completed scene and what isn't, and um, whether or not that's really true, because we, we would always go, well, where are the inserts? And it's like, okay, wait, he's getting them later. We don't, we, he, but he's going to mark this as a complete scene so he can do all that. And, and then you just kind of, okay, let's take a breath. And for me, the real problems actually never in these days involve coverage and things like that to me because i always figure we either have a way around or he's, he's already he knows it and he's going to get it later for me it's if i'm seeing a character problem mm. i'm seeing this isn't r- working why don't you do or actually what i prefer than what's not working is what is working if you if you look at this and this is working why don't you tone it tone everything here and so i'll talk about that stuff and Boy, uh, this director is as smart as a whip, and um, it doesn't take a lot. You you don't even have to finish a sentence, and he'll 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 already have it. I just try myself not to be somebody who comes and rocks the boat. I think also that's a from a lot of experience, you know, knowing that you can do more damage than good. You know, totally. I get think that. there was an instance where I wrote an email to John. And I said, hey, what about this? And not realizing that they, we got it in dailies the next day. Sometimes it's not always on the call sheet, but you still get the footage. So to, to raise an alarm or something, um, like Dan was just saying, sometimes is not beneficial. Sure. And, it, and it's no reason. It, you know, things sort themselves out. But, I mean, that's part of having the editor cutting while they're shooting, right, is to be able to raise those alarms but i i agree that you don't want to be the person that the whiner that is always asking for stuff that they don't have or <laughs> complaining about things that are wrong yeah and, and there are real the, the real issues the juicy ones do get talked there would be we would have meetings that would drift up to the editing room where we could talk about really say what the bad guys are and the story is really going to be what are we going to emphasize because going into the shooting script, it wasn't fleshed out yet. And it got a lot of it did get fleshed out in the, the course of principle. And that had to be done face to face. It wasn't something we could do remotely. Lee and I would talk about the issues incessantly. I would come at her and I go, ah, it's just, you know, this thing like, you know, she had in her big sequence, this thing that I suspected and it, it took forever to <laughs> come and and uh, rear its head for real, and then, boy. But that, that's the kind of thing. We're, we're, we're talking about what everything is about while we're going. We even knew about the implications of, um, of our uh, tag at the end, and we speculated an awful lot if we were really going to be able to do it because it was such a corporate decision, right. things like that. So, so we're talking amongst ourselves, and then when it drifts in, uh, to us, the producers and director, then then we'll bring up these things. But to me, the individual scenes and coverage is is not not necessarily what 
I want to spend the very little time I have with them about. I'm going to talk about story. Of course, we're both story driven, but Dan is like laser focused on the story and always keeps the story. And, you know, like he was saying earlier, the movie is so big and at a certain point it has to come down. And so um, having that focus really helps to just say, okay, this wasn't, this is a fun moment, but it wasn't necessary. It's not story driven. We can lose it and it's okay. Who's the next Iron Man was what I thought the question of the movie was. Or was there something you kept in the back of your mind that was that simple that you judged scenes against? I don't think that, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, but that, I mean, we never really talked about that. That was never uh, the motivation. The, the motivation was always, how does this affect Peter and and, and through Peter's eyes? It, it wasn't to answer the question, who's the next Iron Man? Well, let me answer that question in a different way, because sure. that was there. That, that element absolutely is there built in. What we face a lot, though, is scenes that, that are talking two different things or more, where you do have to slim it down. This scene is about how Peter feels about, you know, he's dealing with, the death of Tony. So this is a big thing. How is he going to overcome the who's going to be the next Spider-Man is just a manifestation of, of having lost his his parental figure. Then the issue comes is that you, we can get scenes that are convoluted and have, you know, multiple talking points at the same time. And ultimately, you, you have to choose a lane. So to answer the question in the form of, well, yeah, you want to sharpen if that moment is about Peter being confronted with who's the next Iron Man, meaning how am I going to replace my, you know, my my father figure? Whereas there's other questions the reporters ask. There's other other footage that could water that down. Generally, I like scenes to not have too many functions um, because they'll they'll sort of cancel each other out. Yeah, I, I totally understand. I was thinking more along the lines of Peter's always trying to decide, you know. Am I worthy to, to accept this exactly. mantle? You know, can right. I do it? How is it going to affect me? How is it going to affect my friends? Yeah, that absolutely. Sorry. I, I guess my, my take on your question was, was more like, were we asking ourselves, like, who's the next Iron Man? You know, the illusion battle is, is leading up to that. It's like he doesn't feel worthy and he's, he's never going to be able to measure up. And, you know, everything that he brings into this movie and, you know, having lost his mentor and just dealing with that in general. It's hard for anyone. Sure. Dan um, gave you a lovely compliment about your organizational skills. What do you think Dan has learned from you, Lee? It was a high compliment, but um, I'm at a loss (laughs) because I feel like um, we both had some terrific support keeping us both in line in the cutting room um, with our assistants. And so I don't know. I, I like to like color the mat a certain color with if I've made a change or something. And so um, I lean on that a lot, like to. What she's not saying is how messy my bins are, how how disorganized and, and, and finding things are like a needle in a haystack. So she's, she's not praising herself. She's just not telling the truth about it. But did you guys ever have to share bins? Were you only working on your scene and then they were, there wasn't a lot of handoff or? We had some scenes that were handoff for sure. You have the bin settings and then I would just click to my bin setting and then it didn't yeah. mess up 
whatever Dan wanted to do for his bin setting. So yeah, um, the hardest was part cool. was um, her room was set up uh, in post production to be the one that um, all the players would come in all the <laughs> ah, and stuff. now I that's so I had to go and great power is, play, a very statuesque lady. She's she's tall, and I guess I'm short and stubby, <laughs> and so. Uh, I had to get up on her chair. She has a raised table with a high chair, and I felt like a toddler <laughs> climbing up on top of her thing, trying to reach over like a toddler, you know, the little cup or whatever, and uh, and and work that way. And so, uh, but you know, we'd have each other settings on our our machine for wherever we were, and and, and try to try to do it that way. Dan and I had a lot of fun. It was a, it was a lot of fun working with Dan, and so uh, I don't know. We laughed a lot. I was I'm interested in the fact that there was a specific room that was more set up to uh, accommodate the director, the producers, whoever needed to come in and have discussions. At least friendlier than me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I honestly it was John got used to I mean on the first Spider-Man he set up his his desk and his office and everything in Dan's room and uh we called it the dorm on this one or they called it yeah, the dorm. Yeah, yeah and, my room was the dorm shared with the even though he has his own huge office around the corner he set up a desk and a thing and hang out only in my room all day. Yeah. Except yeah. when he's working with Lee. So it was so, like uh, I had to leave a sock on the door to let him know not to come in. When, whenever he needed John, if he wasn't with me, he was with Dan in Dan's room. And so um, just because of that, it was, you know, the couch was turned a certain way. And so um, to accommodate John and, and, and that's really what it came down to. Yeah. But but also the the way her room was organized, the when Kevin Feige and all those guys would sit in with us, it was the more comfortable place. Another kind of switch gears. Um, oh, first question would be: Did you guys start before doing previs? I've talked to a bunch of people that say, "Hey, previs editors like from third, the third floor or something, they edit differently kind of than you may edit a scene." Did you guys come in to try to do previs editing before the movie? Not on this one. Have you done it on previous ones, Dan? Yeah. Yeah. I have. I don't particularly like to do it. I do it at the request of the director. Mm -hmm. I think that I, I'm still a little old school in that I think the editors, part of their job is to uh, not not have any skin in the game, you know, to try to get the footage fresh and just evaluate, make our decisions based on not what the plan was, but on what's going to work. So I always find, especially early on in the process when they're, involving in uh, individual moments, I find that, well, that's going to make it a little bit more difficult to just see it for what it is. Uh, later in the process, of course, we have to help plan very precisely what the reshoots are or additional photography is going to be. But during the uh, initial phases, it's, I'm not a huge fan of it, but if it helps the process, I'll do it. Begrudgingly. <laughs> <laughs> and Lee, you were talking about trying to sell scenes or know whether they're working or not. And I always think of sound effects, especially in a movie that's got so much VFX or sometimes it's certain genres. Talk to me a little bit about building out sound effects to try to try to get a scene working when you don't even have all the shots, maybe. Oh, I think sound effects are great. Uh, sound effects and music, of course, do help sell a scene um, because 
it helps with the rhythm, but there's a natural rhythm that has to work before you have sound and music added to it regardless. I will work in mute mode just to see if I have a rhythm right or if it, you know, the natural flow of the scene seems to be playing right and then dress it up with music and sound because we all know that you can really influence tone and pace if you have sound and music just to add a little more intensity to the scene and you put a more intense or something that is a little more percussive music beat uh, just to get it a little more action pace. I'm a big believer in dressing up the scene for presentation because I think it gives you the frame of mind too. Like when, when you want to show something to the director, you want them to feel like they've made a movie. And so dressing it up gives it a more polished feel as well. I believe in getting a good feel for the scene organically for myself just to play it dry, but then definitely adding music and effects help it. And then for presentation, I think it's great. I mean, I think it's key um, just so everyone feels like they're watching a movie and, and their intent is paying off. Mm. Dan, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I like, uh, I have no patience for, um, uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I, at this point, I just wanted to like as quickly as it can feel like a movie. Usually, what I do is I'll I'll, I'll cut the scene, have uh, in mind some um, uh, music and sound effects. I'll only do key sound effects myself, and then I'll toss it to my assistant. And they did a mountain of of sound Be- before the sound house even starts. We have filled that whole all those tracks with sound. That's the work of the assistant team. Lee did a lot more of her own than probably I did. I, I just get the things in place and say, here's what I need. Or my assistant's been around with me so long, she doesn't. She knows what I need. So it's like, uh, okay, just toss it over. And then, and then, again, as important as anyone is our music editor. And like I said before, when we're first starting, each scene is its own movie. They're sort of in their, their own thing. And so you're... You're, all, you're cutting it like it's day in court. You're going to make it like it's the most important scene ever. And then later on, as it gets to it, you'll, as you refine it and you study, you just say, ah, oh, we don't need the beginning or the end. And maybe not the middle either. So, <laughs> But they all get their full thing with all the sound and bells and whistles uh, to see if they're going to make the grade here. So that old notion from way back of the rough cut with rough sound that's a thing of the past. You can't show work that doesn't look like a movie. It has to look like a movie right off the bat. Dan, when you're looking at a blank timeline, what is your approach? Do you use select reels? Are you just watching individual dailies as a clip after clip after clip? There are a lot of schools of thought, a lot of editors, but I'm yep. once again, I'm a, the impatient editor. As soon as I see something that grabs me, I jump in because... My view of the whole thing is that when it used to be, at the beginning of my career, it was still film, right? And you had to be very careful with film. It was, uh, I would call film painterly because every stroke was very important. You couldn't damage the print. Once we went digital, to me, it's more like sculpting. It's like clay. I always say, I'm going to look at everything, just, but I might start editing before I look at everything. So I know that sounds crazy, but I just go where as soon as something gets me, I'll go in. And and I cut from a strong point of view, which means that I kind of sometimes know what I'm looking for. And therefore, I preclude a lot of footage right off the bat without really having fully examined it. Like, well, okay, so they they got a big wide here. Well, 
maybe we'll use it to get in the scene or maybe we'll use it to get out of the scene. I'm not cutting to that damn thing during the middle of the scene. There's no reason to jump outside there. So I'm not going to spend my afternoon looking at your 20 takes of your <laughs> super wide. I know that sounds terrible, but that's that's me being honest. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so definitely not a selects person. Um, Lee? I started out trying to be a selects person, but I shared Dan's point of view in that um, I get excited. I'll start looking at dailies and then I'll start just like cutting it in. And then as I go back through the scene, then, you know, you're looking at more and more and more. I'll do selects for action beats sometimes, but I think I'm probably more Dan's school of thought. Jumping selects in. now can also be just markers, and I'll, I'll put markers on things yeah. just to know where they were. Yeah, exactly. And, and it sounds like with both those schools of thought or with that one school of thought of trying to jump in, it's because you do understand that it's a process. And so if you make a decision on day one, you're not locked in. So why not just start? Not only that, I, I always say, if you do the perfect cut day one in the assembly, all you've done is precluded that cut from existing. Because <laughs> the, the, world, the world, this is a collaborative process that we have to go through. So I had to play a bit of a game with myself to not as they say, tighten the lug nuts too too much during the early thing. I'm very much aware of having done that before and seeing a movie go past its peak. I've had that happen to me. So what what I I really have to play these games of um, oh it's really good for for where we are right now. This is really good, and then. I have to then put it aside because I know that if things go right, when we get towards the end, there's a certain moment where you want it to just slam in tight and and Lee smiling because she knows we had that exact (laughs) moment where they were like, God, this thing's just not going to get better. And it's okay, here we go. And then wham, and you know, all of a sudden it's, it's like a a fighting shape. I have to like, uh, have this mind thing of where we should be when rather than uh, going right in to try to make the perfect scene on day one. I want to make a good scene. I want to make a playable scene that says it, but it's not exactly the most refined or efficient scene it's going to ultimately be. Got it. Uh, Tell me a little bit about screenings. I'm sure you guys did screenings and you attended them. How do you get a sense without even looking at the cards or the the notes that come back from the audience or executives? You're feeling that, right? You're feeling what the audience is feeling. Does it change for you to be in a room with multiple people? We tell them about our task, that unfortunately (laughs) we couldn't do our normal screening task. So because... We have spoilers in our movie. We had to pull people that had seen Endgame for our preview, our little screenings. Um, And so it was a small pool to be able to take from. The first screening that we had went really well. And then our subsequent screenings, you know, the number gets smaller and smaller. And so we had another one. And then we were the execs and everyone said, you know what, We we can't do another one until the movie Endgame comes out because we need to be able to have a larger pool to take from. People have to know what the spoilers are from that to see our movie. The core issue here is that these movies have to be made to show to audiences and we were hamstrung. So the normal process would be to keep bringing in new, fresh audiences to do it. So we had an audience that 
even though they hadn't seen our movie, they were kind of skewed because then it was really in relation to, well, how does this fit with where Endgame is? Uh, so until that movie was out, we couldn't really readjust and do the right. screenings that would then help us help take it home. But screenings are incredibly important for this mass media stuff to see. We, of course, hang on every joke. We do. We, we do. And then we record the audiences on the on those, you know, infrared surveillance cameras. So and and you get to know everyone in that in that little select audience. Oh, that guy, that guy's yawned again. Oh, no. We're screwed. <laughs> so. But for yourself, when you're sitting in an audience, because I'm assuming you guys sat in on those screenings. What did you take away from those screenings yourself? Like when you're watching it for the first time with an audience, you go, oh, that moment lasts a beat too long. It felt perfect in the edit suite, but not, you know, in the cutting room, but not now. Are you are you taking well, notes? I do. I, I take, I'm the one that always has the little pad and, and pen and I'm taking notes and you get a stack of cards. So it's kind of silly for me to sit there and do all the notes, but um, I've done it for years. But yeah, I mean, you sit there on the edge of your seat and as a joke comes <coughs> up, either it's a clam or it plays and, and you know like we would give each other like the the thumbs up or you know there was a moment in third act where when I was cutting it I was like Dan I just don't know that this is going to be as funny as it should be he worked with me on it and he was like it's this is gonna this is funny trust me this is funny and so I was like okay and so the first time that we screened it they got a laugh and I turned to Dan and I, I smiled and I was like okay you're right. You're right. You're right. You know, you're on the edge of your seat to see if the joke that you put in, you know, are they going to find it funny? Is it as big as it needs to be or is it too big and then it's not funny? I mean, they're very informative, but, you know, I get nervous sitting in the audience because, you know, early on whether you've got the audience with you or if they're not really loving the movie and because um, there's just an energy in the room. And so, you know, when they start laughing early on, it, you're like, all right, okay, this might not be so bad. And then, you know, sometimes in these things, it, it takes a turn. And then sometimes they stay with you and they appreciate the movie like you want them to. Yeah, those things are crazy because you hang on a dime and then big decisions are made off this small little group that's seen this movie. A statistically insignificant sample size. <laughs> but people are saying, oh, but told you so. The first act doesn't work. It's terrible get rid of it or whatever it's like hey wait a minute guy you look at the last screening they loved it <laughs> yeah so you yeah. have to be yet to yet to look at it and take it for what it's worth i don't take the notepad i just kind of like to watch them i'll smile if they if they're laughing and i'll i'll laugh if they're if it's silence about my own folly and how badly this moment just played you know but then, then there's the other great stuff is to see when the twists hit you know you know to see if they're on the edge of the seat and stuff but lee's right if, if you have a screening and it starts and they're not on board right away you're like oh it's gonna be a long night and vice versa if, if they're like right in right away it's just oh okay here we go when the screenings go bad, you also know you've got your work cut out for you for the next couple of weeks, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. But, the, you know, the, the strange, though, because these are scored things, and I've certainly had it where you go, oh, this audience isn't enjoying it, and then the score comes back and it's higher than the other ones. You're like, what? 
and you have to kind of go by both of those things. You have to go by what you felt in the room, but you have to go by what they tell you on the, on the scores. And then they beat you up with the focus groups. That's the yeah. other fun part. They start off, they're so pumped and they're so positive and, oh, it's great and everything's great. And then it starts turning a little bit, <laughs> a little thing. Wasn't that guy's hair a little weird? Or what is this? Like, oh, yeah. And then, why was it? What was that all about? It's like, and then they start going, here it comes. So then you get this avalanche. And then uh, that information is interesting, but it's dangerous, too, because then they hear this. If, if somebody was, like, worried about something, you could end up having to try it, change. So, But that's just part of the process. We go down alleys that lead to nothing a lot. As much as we're always advancing the picture, we're also sometimes going backwards on certain things. That's why you have to have enough screenings to then get to that point where you feel, yeah, that's it. We can put right. out this movie. Sometimes, you know, the focus group it does kill you because one person can really, you know, change the tone of 20 different people by saying something bothered them and then they all get to think about it and they're like, yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, that's the takeaway. And they all love the movie. Now they all hate it. Yeah, that's it's dangerous stuff. I want to ask you one final question. I've kept you guys almost an hour. I really appreciate your time. You've both been so generous with me. Thank you. Um, Dan, you alluded to the fact that you started cutting on film. Do you remember your first uh, nonlinear, I'm assuming Avid, but maybe not? Yeah. It, w it actually, the first movie I was, the editor, was it was cut on this rinky-dink Oh, state-of-the-art thing big back then it was a poor man's ediflex mm. and actually the guy who designed it it was this thing that chased a bunch of betamaxes you'd go here's what the here's what science has come up with uh you do a preview and then you'd hear like 12 betamaxes clicking yeah. to places so you could play multiple cuts and it would go you got at least 15 seconds of material you can watch here that's that's where <laughs> science has brought us what can they do more now so but then by uh, my second film, I was on an Avid. I, I bought my first Avid in 92. So I never looked back. But in those days, we also had the parallel film room. Even if we we're cutting digital, we would have an, 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 a film room with us, and we would be cutting the prints up and getting them ready for screenings. So we would still look at film, or we would go and, like, because the resolution wasn't very good, so you'd jump right. on the steam back and look at the film so uh 92 what film was that uh actually that was 93 I, in 92 i was a music video guy and i was cutting on avid's first film that i cut on avid was a film called dead presidents uh that came out in 94 yeah ali what about you i've always been on avid spoiled <laughs> i'm just always interested in that transition because some people have just talked about nightmare transitions from film to digital. For me, it became my advantage. That's how I rose so quickly in Hollywood because I was on the cusp of that. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been really uh, informative and interesting and fun to talk to both of you. Uh, congratulations on the movie and uh, good luck on your next projects. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'd also like to thank Michael Zack, who volunteered to edit this podcast. Also, check out Art of the Cut on ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Thanks again to my guests, Lee Folsom Boyd and Dan Leventhal. I'm Steve Hallfish. I hope this podcast gave you insight into the editorial process of filmmaking. If so, make sure to tell a filmmaking friend about Art of the Cut. And follow me on Twitter, at Steve Hallfish. Mm -hmm.